0: Of 7 in 7, the bonus spin-off from the social minute. Looking at the film 7 in 7 the awkwardly cut-up pieces. I am your host, Darren, and today I am joined by Gina Radcliffe. Hello, Gina. Hello. Uh, we are discussing the final part of the film, which, if you're watching on PAL, goes from one thirty four forty six to 2 hours. And if you're watching on NTSC, it goes from one thirty eight fifty two to 2 hours, 6 minutes and 49 <laughs> seconds. So the Americans get extras, almost 7 minutes. That's down to PAL speed-up. We, we, we get less when it comes to 2-hour films. Uh, which is, I guess, why some longer films over here, people people don't feel as bad about. It. They're like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. we we'll get slightly less. Um, we are starting after the deal has been made um, and Mills declares, let's finish it, which feels like something that would happen in the kind of buddy cop movie that this was originally envisaged to be. Uh feels slightly out of place, like, you know, in this one, but, uh, you know, D- Brad Pitt delivers it nicely. Um, we end up with uh, Mills and Somerset shaving their chests so that they can be wired up Um, and discussing how they should react to whatever happens now with John Doe. Um, And then uh, they suit up, uh, which is a nice little sequence, as they put on all their various bits of clothes and their stab vests and everything else. Um, And then they take John Doe to the car, and then they begin to drive out um, to where John Doe is instructing them to go. Uh, It's worth saying, in the original script, all of this took place in abandoned warehouses, uh, through an abandoned waterworks, and then into an abandoned church. Um, a lot of this script was written around abandoned churches and uh, pornographic theaters, and then all of that was completely changed when Stephen Fincher came on board.
1: I am so glad they changed it, because the, <laughs> the abandoned church, that, that that's just too, yeah, no, fin, yeah. Fincher can be yeah. a little heavy-handed, he's not that heavy-handed. I, I, think, yeah. just, I think just the, like, I, again, and, I, and I, I'm pretty sure you've discussed this in previous episodes, it's not clear where this takes place. Um, I, I had assumed I'd always thought it was supposed to be Chicago. Um, but then they drive out to this field out in the middle of nowhere and it's like, okay, I don't know where this is. It's, it's, which is good. Cause I like when, when movies do that, I think it's good to create that sort of sense of disorientation and, 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 you know, well, this could be anywhere and nowhere, but I think just the, the, you know, you know, desolate field, out in the middle of nowhere is so much more effective than an abandoned church. That just I'm like I'm like I was like rolling my eyes when you were saying that.
0: Yeah, uh, well, we get out into the desert, uh, the desert of upstate New York. I don't know. I mean, uh, New York and Philadelphia were the two kind of cities that inspired this. Uh, but with them shooting in LA, I think obviously David Fincher was like, let's have a scene set out in the sunshine in like, you know, let's make use of the fact of where we are. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, is and it, so, Am
1: I correct that it's the only scene that takes place when it's not raining? Pretty much like, it, yeah, it's it, so it's it, it really it, it really, really works. It works excellently. It's it's like oppressively sunny. It's not, you know, it's it's not raining. It's it's just, it's very, very well done.
0: The rain actually stops like literally as Jondo turns himself in. Um, so that when you see him getting out of the taxi, the rain has actually stopped at that point. That's so great. Um, <laughs> That's which is so obviously great. significant. <laughs> yeah. I, I,
1: I don't uh, know. I, I, I'm sure all your guests have been very enthusiastic, but I really, really, really love this movie, and I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk about it.
0: Uh, we get some speechifying from John Doe um, <laughs> as he he lays out his contradictory message, and I like how both Mills and Somerset gradually pick apart his... Rand idea um, bit by bit as they're driving him out um, of course they arrive at this particular location uh, on the instruction of john doe they were there to you know they were meant to be there at seven o'clock exactly uh which you know for obvious reasons um but the problem then is obviously the delivery driver is a few minutes late and so he gets there uh he delivers the box um and then of course uh we get probably like i don't know this film the score is not super dramatic. like it's just kind of very kind of you know it's just kind of uh i mentioned this in previous episodes but it's just kind of like humming along underneath like there's there's not really any kind of themes that i can kind of think of that are particularly memorable um but then you know once we get out in the desert and i mean there's it's just a wonderful sequence where obviously somerset realizes what's in the box because he's looked in the box um, despite the fact that over the over the headset we hear California say get the get the bomb disposal team in, <laughs> it's like from where, buddy? You are out in the middle of nowhere. We're going to wait twenty minutes for them to drive in and then send their robot to this little box. And again, and again, um, and again
1: it's, this is a really well done sequence because you know up to this point, this movie has been very unsparing in how dead bodies are portrayed. Like I'm thinking back to to the the gluttony scene and just how. Visceral and and like you almost you can almost like smell what the crime scene smells like and but here like you don't all you see is the outside of the box and you see a little bit like a spot of blood and and then you see yeah. Morgan Freeman's reaction that's all you see like you you never like you you're not really you know, until John Doe says what's in there you don't know it could be could be her her heart could be could be anything. Um, you just don't know, and it's just—it's the one time the whole movie where it's really done very—you know—restrained, whereas the rest of it is not.
0: And I, I mean, they—they they did actually make a head to put in that box. They made a life cast of, um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's head, um, and then they—they uh, they decided not to use it. The head was later used in the film Contagion. Oh, okay. <laughs> because the prop department had, had
1: pro- that, This is, this is, this is you know, a good special effect. We gotta use the money, we gotta use it on something.
0: Uh it's funny because I think there's a there's a moment like obviously uh, Morgan Freeman has a very particular voice. Um he does not sound like he's from where he is from, which is Memphis, Tennessee, that's where he was born. He doesn't really have what I would call like a Memphis accent. Uh, and in this film nobody really has an accent because obviously if you know if everyone was talking you know like a with kind of like a very really thick new york accent it would kind of give away where they're from or if they had like a Philadelphian accent well the only time Chicago. only time anybody
1: talks in an accent is when kevin spacey who you you can't see you can only hear has disguised himself as a as a, as a reporter to take that picture of Brad Pitt he puts on like a kind of almost comical like new york You know, New York in the 1940s accent,
0: which is kind of, which is kind of funny. (laughs) So Morgan Freeman's accent in this film, I would say, has not been, uh, uh, one would say, you know, Tennessean. But then when he, when he sees, when he sees the box, there's a line he has where he's like, uh, uh, don't be coming over here, don't be coming. And his accent kind of comes through. Well, yeah, because he's,
1: he's, he's, I mean, he's, you put it, you know, inelegantly. he's shitting himself. I mean, he's like, he's like, he just figured out, oh my God, this is why he brought us out here. You know, he, yeah. like, like, everything is, is, you know, cause that, that, that's a common thing when, when people are either around, the people who have tried to, who worked hard to get rid of their accents, they, it comes back either when they're in, they're anxious or when they're around other people who have the same accent. But yeah, like, you could, you can almost clear the click, like, oh my god, this is what he's doing, and he, <laughs> Every any pretense he has, it just immediately drops.
0: Yeah. Obviously, you know, Somerset is meant to be a very kind of thoughtful and deliberate person, so his his accent suddenly comes out just for those who Right, and
1: the and the fact that he's panicking, you know, you could tell that the that the helicopter pilots are like, Oh shit, something something's going on. he's like frantically running around this field, like waving his arms and shouting, and it's like and they don't they don't they can't see what's in the box and so it's just you know, everybody's like, Okay, something bad's about to happen.
0: Yeah, he composes himself enough to say John Doe has the upper hand which is when his his you know his kind of Somerset voice comes back Um, and then obviously we get probably one of the most famous scenes in the film um, you know and obviously the big kind of twist ending the whole kind of you know what's in the box what's in the box Um, it's so good (laughs)
1: I mean I I hate to I am averse to complimenting Kevin Spacey at this point but I mean it's it would be disingenuous to not mention he's really good in this. He's like, the yeah. he, only time he ever raises his voice is when he, he he goes, when he turns himself in. He's just like, there's like a, a really, a, probably the most chilling line reading is when Mills and Somerset, like Somerset's trying to calm Mills down, and Somerset's doing, or Mills is doing the whole, you know, what's in the box, what's in the box, and Kevin Spacey, he just says, I just told you. And you can't even hear, like you know that you know that that Mills can't hear him, but the audience can, and it's just it's just the line reading is so good, and he's really good in it, and it's it's just so angering to me that you know his real life person, not even his persona, who he really is, as a person has just tainted so many good performances because he is excellent in this everybody's excellent in this like i know people think that brad pitt's acting in this scene is a little shaky i don't think it is i i think he's i think he's no. perfectly great in this scene I, I think he is someone who is unused to expressing that level of hysteria that he's at and i, I don't know that a lot of men are, are you know could handle themselves and would come off as you know not sort of you know a little you know whiny and fearful but it's just you know i think he's 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 great and i think he is really really great and this was a point this and 12 monkeys was the point the turnaround point in his career when it's like oh okay he's not gonna be just, just this ridiculously handsome guy he's he's gonna be he also has to be a good actor on top of it
0: yeah and i th- i think as well like the performance is justified for you know john doe is calmly talking he is um, shouting and it's worth noting as well this is the, this is i think only the second time in the entire film where uh we go handheld um previously we've gone handheld during the chase but i think a lot of that was just um like a little bit of shaky cam here and there like it was still um on rails but it was it was just kind of as it turned to to follow characters it was a little bit kind of shaky uh, whereas here we're completely handheld but only when we're on mills Everything from Mills' point of view is handheld and kind of dacha because he's
1: because he's he's losing. It. Yeah. I mean, he's basically like he's falling apart.
0: Whereas Kevin Spacey is delivering his his calm dialogue in a very static shot.
1: Yeah, cuz everything everything is everything is turning out exactly the way he planned it. And it's just like, ugh, like like you're you just get a chill just thinking about it.
0: And then as Morgan Freeman runs back, uh, the camera is uh, is on is on rails. So it's it's following Morgan Freeman. Um, And again, it does the David Fincher thing of everybody's um, like uh, kind of eye lines are in the middle of the frame. So as they jump between the different points of view, because there's at least like two or three different shots of them, plus you have the, the helicopter shots. Um, it's always kept on like their heads are kind of kept near the center of the screen. So it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just David Fincher. That's just what he does. And it it's, it looks so brilliant. And yet, um, you know, you can't work out exactly why it's so perfect. And that's why it's just because he knows exactly where to focus the camera to keep your attention um and then of course mills uh shoots john doe he shoots him once and then he follows up with five more shots um which i guess maybe has the significance of if he had a seventh shot in his gun he maybe would turn that on himself and that would be seven uh but i'm guessing he's out of ammo after those six shots Um, and I, i like as well how somerset doesn't stop mills once he's made the initial shot he's thrown his own gun away but once he makes the initial shot he just lets Mills unload in Jundo, and he just stands there. And... Well, he's like,
1: he, yeah, he's just kind of standing like, well, I guess that's that. Might as well let him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> might as well let him get some of peace.
0: Yeah. Once you once you've shot someone once, you may as well keep shooting because they can only prosecute you once for shooting someone. It's not like each bullet gets a separate prosecution. So just keep on going that's true um and
1: uh that's i mean let's face it he's not going to be i mean you know if you, if you try to think about what well, he's not going to be prosecuted I mean, he's gonna oh no be, no like, it's you know, yeah it's no it's, it's justifiable
0: self defense um you know yeah so there's there's no way there's no way it's going to court but at the same time uh, that is also why uh, the death penalty is not a deterrence because once people kill someone and they realize that they are going to be subject to the death penalty they just keep on killing because you can only kill them once um exactly. So and then of course we get probably my favorite line in the entire movie history which is somebody calls somebody.
1: Um <laughs> <laughs> It's like who are they talking to? It's like aren't you the somebody? <laughs> yeah, you would ex- you call somebody you, ex- you call somebody. You're the cops.
0: <laughs> you would expect that the captain of the SWAT team who is in the helicopter above would be the one to make that call instead he's on the headset saying somebody calls somebody. Um,
1: yeah, I was like, I—I I mean, I—I I just assumed everybody's just sort of just shocked by what what's taken place, and and I'm, I'm like, but yeah, you 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 call somebody, you're the somebody, <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, and then of course, you know, uh, Mills is taken away in the car. Uh, the captain says he will get some help. Somerset says, you know, whatever he needs, and then Somerset uh, tells us a quote uh, where you know the the world is a, a good place and worth fighting for, and of course he agrees with the first part, um, you know uh and i think he said the second second, the second part, part he, he, sorry second yeah, he part. agrees with the yeah. second part which is which, part. is
1: which is with, with, with current events as they are right now and i don't want to get too heavy that's a pretty heavy relevant statement that i've been that i think about often i mean i know that it was did he say it was hemingway who said it it is
0: hemingway yes uh,
1: yeah. yeah uh so yeah i i do find myself thinking about that quote Quite a bit in recent times.
0: In the in the original draft of the script, it was actually going to be at the front of the film. It was going to be that quote was going to be at the front of the film, and then um, it never. Well, in the original script, it does We don't get like this meaningful voiceover at the end. It's like I said, it's in abandoned churches and all kinds of stuff. So there's a whole different uh, there's a whole different ending. Um, but yeah, it, there was also a draft of the script where the head in the box was not going to be Tracy, but was going to be one of the dogs. Um, and they and they kind of said no, no, no. It's like. i don't think he would kill
1: anybody over that i mean i mean i mean people people love their pep i mean we're not turning into like john wick here i mean i I, (laughs) that's a little that's a little as shocking as the movie had been up to this point that would have been a little bit pulling its punches
0: yeah so um yeah and you know and then obviously the film finishes with the david bowie song and the and the, the credits going upwards uh, Kevin Spacey, of course, foregoed having his name at the start of the film, uh, so that it would be one a surprise for the audience, and two, he didn't have to go around doing the promotional tour for it. And so he gets the credit of, you know, Kevin Spacey as John Doe, and then the credits start rolling, and it says John Doe, Kevin Spacey. So he actually gets credited twice in the end credits, as <laughs> recompense for not being credited in the opening credits. He would have been top billing. He would have had, he would have been on the poster as top billing. He would have had the first name in the credits. He would have been top billed. Um, had it? Really? His, yes, that was that was the original plan. Uh, if you watch the opening credits, there's a little pause before Brad Pitt's name comes up, and that's where Kevin Spacey's name would have gone.
1: No kidding! That's so funny because I mean he's only, I mean he's only physically in it for this section of the movie, about a less than a half hour. Yeah. But he was plus, you know, plus again, he does show up in an earlier scene. But A, you don't know what's him, and B, you can't see him.
0: Yeah. So, well, yeah, he's basically only in the film for about twenty minutes. But yeah, I mean, like the funny thing is, like most of the scene before where we start is his lawyer negotiating on his behalf. So even then, you know, you only see him like kind of in the after he's been brought in for like a couple of minutes and then there's a break of four or five minutes while everything's negotiated and then you see him again. Um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's, you know, that's where we start. So let's go back to the beginning, you know, like, uh, the, the kind of the suiting up scene, I think, is quite interesting and the kind of the shaving, um, you know, there's obviously this is meant to be a little bit of levity after. I mean, I, I don't know how much levity you can have in a film where five people have been brutally murdered already. Um, <laughs> but I think the kind of the, the conversation about, you know, whatever happens when we go out there with John Doe, you know, like if he turns into an alien and, you know, a UFO flies out of his head, don't react is kind of a nice bit of I don't know it's kind of one of those things where both of them are like yeah sure no I'm not going to react and then obviously if you know the end of the film it's it's like yeah
1: it's 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 chillingly prescient it's like yeah it's like oh you think something weird's gonna happen you don't think something horrifying is gonna happen though
0: yeah no this is it so like the, the idea of like oh he's gonna do something crazy and again that's something that throughout the film Brad Pitt's character has you know has said this guy's wacky he's crazy he's you know like And that's how it's always been characterised, you know, like, you know, the dog made me do it. Uh, Jodie Foster made me do it. Like all of this kind of stuff has been put out there of like, he's super crazy. And then by the end of the film, you realise Junda wasn't super crazy, but he was just very methodical and he planned. And that is what Somerset has been saying for the entire film as well. He's been saying, don't call the guy crazy because he's clearly not crazy. He has a specific plan. He spent a year starving a guy to death. He spent a week feeding a guy to death. Oh,
1: yeah. They're very much, you know, you have to be methodical yeah. to be a serial killer. I mean, like, like, like spree killers. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not a criminologist, but I, I have you know, read my share of true crime. But you know, generally speaking, you know, like a spree killer or a mass murderer tend to be more mentally unbalanced. But a serial killer, you have to you put on a face of normalcy you know, a lot of these take planning. They take, you know, not getting caught. I mean, the reason why a serial killer is a serial killer because they don't get caught, at least not for, you know, a while. So generally, they're not, you know uh what is it the line that you know, you know, sitting in your mother's underwear uh you know you know, fleeing your shit around they're, they're generally not like yeah. that you know that's what's so scary about them is that a lot of times they are as the cliche goes you know your neighbor or your co-worker
0: yeah although i will say there's also a number of serial killers who are not that intelligent and the reason they get caught is because they aren't that intelligent <laughs> um or they think, or or they or they or they simply think that they're smarter
1: than everyone yeah. else. So they so they do things like they re, they return to the scene of the crime, or or you know they they get start getting a little bold and and cocky, and yeah, you know, they assume because they haven't been caught yet that they're not they're not going to get yeah. caught.
0: Um, yeah. But he wanted, I mean, but
1: he, but but John Doe wanted to get caught. It was part of his plan. I mean, he he turned himself in. You don't, you don't, you don't want to get caught more than turning yourself in.
0: Well, this is it. Yeah. And so, you know, they get ready. They put on their bulletproof vests. Uh, I said stab vests because the police over here don't wear bulletproof vests. They wear stab vests because we don't have people shooting at the police over here. Um... So, you know, and they they kind of get all suited up. Um, and it's funny, I think, because as well, even though, uh, you know, David Mills is fully suited up with everything. And, he, and this is probably the point at which he most resembles Somerset. You know, like this is the most put together he's been um, when he gets in the car. You can still notice that his tie is slightly off center, whereas Somerset is still on center. And so even though he's like he's more like this is the most kind of like business that David Mills has been in the entire film up until this point. You know, he's been a bit more flippant and you know and so now he's kind of almost in you know following somerset's lead and he you know he's he's kind of looking more ready for you know whatever john doe's going to throw at them um but he's still you know his ties are still a little bit unruly and you know like he's still not fully put together um you know which i you know again works for the character he's meant to be younger he's meant to be slightly kind of different so you know but i still find it interesting how over the film mills has become a little bit more like somerset uh somerset doesn't become more like mills um Somerset has no arc in this film. Um, he starts the film as someone who is grumpy and who is really good at his job. And he finishes the film as someone who is grumpy and hates his job. <laughs> like, he has no real arc. I mean, I, yes, get, I yes. get it. You know? I mean, that, the, <laughs> uh, the only character in this film really that has an arc is David Mills. You know, he comes in kind of bright eyed and ready to kind of be, be a, a serious detective. And then this case gradually drags him down until, you know, he turns into a murderer. Um, you know, I w- actually, you know, manslaughter. Let's say,
1: yeah, I mean, he's completely, he's one hundred percent justified.
0: Yeah, I d- you know, this is it. I mean, and he. Even- it's a,
1: it's just a shame that he played right into. I mean, of course, the, you know, the whole heavy arc of it is is in being justified. He still played right into John Doe's yeah. hands.
0: And let's be realistic: even if cops kill someone with no justification, they still don't go to prison. So. <laughs> You know, That's yeah. It, I mean, well, I mean, he was he wasn't. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't
1: know if uh if John Doe is typically the 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 type of person that 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 you know cops kill unprovoked. Let's say, but yeah, I mean, he yeah. Mills. You know, he'll he'll under, You know, and and again, you know, d- you you need it. We'll probably spend a little time in a psych hospital, and then. You know, go, go, you know, be returned to his desk job where he can, you know, live the rest of his sad life in peace.
0: I think you know, like obviously everyone understands the trauma of what's happened and how extraordinary it is, but still, let's keep it realistic. Cops don't get prosecuted for murdering people. <laughs> so, no, no, um, it's not something to worry about. Um, now, interestingly, we get the uh, where, as they're driving out of the city, obviously, you know, followed by a helicopter, um, and we see all the the uh, news vans as well at the back of the police station, uh, which is a nice touch because obviously. Uh, you know, the kind of press conference from earlier for the second murder has, I guess, kind of lent this case a little bit of um, kind of, uh, you know, publicity. So, it, of course, you know, after this deal is made, I'm assuming that, uh, you know, DA Shaft goes back out front and has another press conference while they take John Doe away. Maybe as kind of like a distraction tactic. Um, and, you know, in the helicopter, we have the voice of uh, John C. McGinley. Um, kind of just telling us obvious things <laughs> like about where they're heading and where they're going. And uh, I don't. I, it always kind of strikes me as funny when people state the obvious, like it's kind of like, oh, they're heading out the city. It's like, yeah, I mean, everyone knows this. Like the people in the car know this and the people in the helicopter know this. Who are you talking to, John C. McGinley? <laughs> um, but uh, it's nice that they, they had him back just to do a little bit of the, the kind of the, the voiceover so that, you know, it's a kind of an established character that kind of has already worked with Mills and Somerset. Um, you know, and we actually get a shot of uh, the city limits. Uh, we see that Kern Avenue is three quarters of a mile away. Vernon Avenue is one and a half miles in that way, and Fifty First Street is two and a quarter miles away. Um, and the city has about uh, eight hundred thousand people. And as a city, it was incorporated in, uh, I think it says something like nineteen thirty nine. Um, yeah, I, I have
1: odd. no, I have no idea where they are.
0: <laughs> it's a, so. You know they, they kind of go past the city limits just as John Doe is saying to them, it doesn't matter who I am. Um, and we get then... It's funny because we're, we're still basically half an hour from the end of the film, from from the end of a two-hour film, and there are still two sins to go. And if you're sitting in the cinema, as I was in 1906, you're like, where are these two other sins that I was promised on the poster? I was promised seven sins, and so far we've only had five. Um, and obviously John Doe's taken him out to find two bodies, and I'm like, who are these two bodies? um you know so there's a lot of kind of and as John Doe's talking I remember in the cinema thinking okay but who else has he killed (laughs) um and and so obviously that you know that is kind of on your mind as a viewer is like you know maybe maybe John Doe like I kept thinking maybe John Doe Doe will mention something so that we could call back to earlier in the film so it could tie in with somebody who we've seen or someone who we know obviously I didn't suspect who would be one of the bodies. Um, but I think when I saw it the first time I was at this point, I was still kind of trying to figure out, well, we're quite far from the end. And who were the, who could the other people be? I mean, this is one of the few times I remember my cinema experience and being like completely enraptured and not paying attention to anything and just sitting there watching the film being like, what is going to happen? Yeah. Where are we going?
1: Yeah, I, I... I see, I saw it at the theater too. Um, I was not spoiled on anything at all. Like I didn't know that, that John Doe was played by Kevin Spacey. I didn't know how it was going to end. I, I think I saw it pretty early in its in its uh, in its release. And and when you, when you look back on it now, you know hindsight being twenty twenty and all, you, you think oh of course the, the, one of the bodies would have to be Tracy, you know Mills's wife. I mean that's that you know there's. You know, the whole setup with her not being happy about where they are and confiding in, 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 in Somerset that she's pregnant and doesn't, you know, and, and it's, of course, that's who, you know, that's to the character, that that's to the, at least the sixth body is going to be. But, I mean, I think at the time I was like, I don't know, what was he talking about? I don't know, I guess they're going to go out there and find another dead body. It's like, well, not quite, <laughs> you know, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's. It, does pretty well if you go in completely cold to it it doesn't really even occur to you
0: yeah and i think that's the, the thing as well is like because the previous five victims were all basically unconnected to anything
1: yeah they were uh, all like you know. random people that he just kind of encountered
0: yeah aside from sloth being one of the um clients of greed um you know oh, right, right, right yeah gl- gluttony is basically random lust was kind of random uh pride it feels like was just like a last minute kind of of like we need to kill like i need to kill someone who can i kill oh i know this person they're very you know they're very beautiful they'll probably be you know they'll probably fit pride um so like all of those feel a little bit kind of like chaotic and um, and i would also say in terms of whether or not he's actually a serial killer um he doesn't fit the definition because each of the kills are different Um, there's no escalation and not that we know of obviously you know that maybe there was a a decade of him practicing killing people we don't we're not aware of Um, but in terms of the five kills that we've seen the methods of killing are completely different they don't take place at like the same time of day or you know like uh, they aren't based on locations like if you're actually going by you know what is classified as a serial killer John Doe doesn't fit and then obviously the last two killings definitely don't fit (laughs) Um, you know he hasn't beheaded anyone up until this point so it, it, it's, it's kind of weird because obviously this is thought of as like a serial killer film. Um, but I would say the Silence of the Lambs is a lot more a serial killer film because obviously Hannibal Lecter was a cannibal and that was his kind of trademark as a serial killer. So when he killed people, he ate them. And whereas here, John Doe kills people. I mean, he doesn't even kill the lust victim. He forces somebody else to kill them um you know starving someone for a year and then overfeeding someone else those are complete like they're completely different methods um and then you know uh, the same with uh with like you know greed and pride both involve a knife but sloth doesn't he doesn't even kill sloth he just starves him to death and then he basically just dies from the c- the condition so um i would say strictly speaking he's not a serial killer he's just um, um you know uh I don't know how you define it. Just like a, he's not a mass killer because he's not killing enough people for that. But he's just, you know, just somebody who killed a few people, basically. But because they're all disconnected, aside from that one tiny connection, um, it feels weird that, like, when you're when you're trying to figure out who who could he be killing next, my when I was watching the film, I was always like, well, it's just going to be two more random people that we don't know that maybe one of them might be connected to one of the previous victims, um, but. You know, it like it was very hard to kind of figure out. But then looking back, it seems kind of obvious. All the stuff with Tracy, um, and there's also little hints in the film where you know when people talk about wrath or uh, or envy, uh, they'll turn towards Brad Pitt and they'll cover his head up. Um, and so, like there's little shots like that that kind of foreshadow it. But it's it's kind of weird because I remember as a viewer just being like, oh, so he's just going to show them two more random bodies like how is this going to be a satisfying ending? Like okay, we've got seven kills, but it doesn't really feel like it's going to go anywhere. Uh, obviously, I was completely wrong because um you know, the film has probably one of the more satisfying endings in film history.
1: Yeah, it's it's satisfying, but it's also super bleak and and I have a very distinct memory of going to see the movie and um when it was over, it was it was very similar to when I'd gone to see The Blair Witch Project a couple of years later where everybody just kind of filled out filled out of the theater in silence like everybody's just like well, okay. <laughs> I need a little bit of. I need some time to quietly
0: digest what I just saw. This is one, probably one of the like few times I can remember early on where I was. I was probably in the cinema until the end of the credits.
1: Well, because the credits are so well done. I mean, they're just they're they're practically art in and of themselves.
0: Yeah, but also because I was so shocked by what had just happened. So I was just sitting there, being like, "What has just happened?" And then for five <laughs> minutes, I was just watching the credits go past, and I was like. Oh, I don't understand what's going on here. Like, I did. also I was like, is this David Bowie? I can't really tell. Like, it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, his his kind of normal stuff. I think um, "Heart's Filthy Lesson" had been released as a single a few weeks before. So yes,
1: it was from the uh the album "Outside," which uh was one of his more underappreciated albums. It is a uh, a concept album. Uh, I I loved it. I I bought it largely on the strength of that single. Um, now to be fair probably is you know as is you often the case with singles the strongest track on the album but uh but yeah it it works it's it's such a weird choice for a movie like this and and, and it's just it, you know and because and, and they could they use a slightly they use a slightly different um yeah, it's just it, it, that and like the nine inch nails at the beginning of the movie, and it's like, okay, this movie is
0: '90s as fuck.
1: <laughs> in, a, in a good way, though. It's just, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's so, it, it's so, yeah, you know, pulls it all together really well.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, "Heart's Filthy Lesson" was uh, released over here on September the 11th, 1995. Um, so it had been out for quite a few weeks. Uh, it did, I mean, did okay over here. Um, it only got to number 35. Um and it was only there for a couple of weeks before it kind of just disappeared. Um and I certainly I think I think by the time this film came out over here they'd already released like another two singles from this album. Um and I think the remix that's playing at the end might be the Trent Reznor remix. Uh because I think that's like about five minutes and the credits are about five minutes. So that would yeah. and that would fit fit with the opening being uh, nine inch nails. Um but yeah, it's I don't know, it's it's kinda of, it's kind of weird because um, you know, in particular just on this one sticking point um the whole point of outside with like you say it was like a concept album um and it was labeled number one Uh, we never got any other we never got number two number three we never got any other albums in that concept it was literally by itself which was kind of disappointing but also um like the, the weirdest thing is like that is something that's kind of like from a concept album that that track is and so then to put it in this film is I always thought it was a bit weird because it's like, well, surely if it's a concept thing, it needs to fit with the, the rest of the album. Like it can't just be picked out and put onto like a soundtrack. Um, and then they did it. And I was like, hmm. that would be that would be to me. It, it just felt a bit weird because it'd be like somebody taking like a song. Let's say a, let's say a, a film is released this year and it takes like one of the songs from the soundtrack for the greatest showman and has that play over the end credits you'd be like well this belongs to a different project you can't just do that you can't just take something from another project and take it out of that and put it on the end of yours and then be like oh yeah now it's mine it just it just felt a little bit weird but uh you know that's obviously something that's bothered me for 22 years and finally i (laughs) I have a place to to say that but yeah it always felt weird that he took that Something from another concept and then added it to this film, and I was like, "Well, this that just seems like cheating a little bit. Like, have David Bowie compose you a brand new song, like Prince did, for Batman, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, have him have that play it over the end credits. You know, come up come up with your own version of Batdance, um, <laughs> and have David Bowie sing that. But instead, they took a pre-existing song that had been out for a few months, and I was like, um, I don't know. I I wasn't sold on the concept. I mean, I think now it kind of works." Uh, but I remember at the time just being completely bothered by that. And that's probably why I was sitting there for five minutes as well. I was like, why have they taken a song from another thing and put it on the end of this thing? Um, you know, it'd be almost as as weird as someone taking, like, Whitney Houston's version of I Was Always Love You and play that over the end of, of, of like, a Marvel film. And you'd be like, what the... Like, that's... what's the, like, you know. I think that, that would be amazing. <laughs> it well, it I mean, probably they, would. You know,
1: well. it's like when... Uh, uh, um, I forget which... I think it was... Deadpool 2, where they played that song uh, Angel of the Morning, which uh, it, just, it just works really well, but it also works really well because of the type of movie Deadpool is, whereas, you know, the Marvel movies aren't quite working at that same level of humor that your or, or you know cognitive dissonance if you want to call it that where you know whatever's happening you know the music that is happening doesn't match it
0: just for me i still think it works well with these credits and it, and obviously being what i think is the 9 inch nails remix of that song and then having the 9 inch nail well it's, it's a remix of a remix that goes that plays over the titles of this of the of the song uh, of this film so like having closer at one end and a trent reznor remix at the other end i think it works that way uh, but I just thought, like you know, it,
1: it, you you
0: you know, you've stolen you've stolen something from another project and put it on this one. It just felt a little bit weird. Um, but uh, but before we get to that, we still have this kind of long. I don't know. It's like it's it's interesting because it's about fifteen minutes of them in the car, uh, just driving around, and John Doe getting to basically say in person what was in all those little books that he'd written. Um, you know, where he's talking about. First of all, he says it doesn't matter who he is. Um, and then he says, you know, he's not special, you know, when this is through, you'll see what I'm doing. Um, and obviously he does a nice bit of foreshadowing when he says, you know, when David Mills is like, well, when this big thing happens, point it out to me. And he's like, well, I'll be, I'll be standing right next to you. I won't have to point it out to you. Uh, which obviously turns out to be very true. Um, and I, this argument that, you know, to get people's attention, you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You have to use a sledgehammer. Uh, which I think is interesting because I I think in like 1995 96 you probably still could get people's attention, um it it kind of quite easily, um you know like the media wasn't as saturated as it is today like um you know and fractured um and the news cycle wasn't as quick um so I I think maybe he at that point would kind of apply more today than it did in 95 96 but I I sort of understand what he's saying like to to get people's attention you've got to murder people in the style of the, the seven deadly sins. And then eventually they'll be able to listen to you. Uh, But then I don't think that the message he has is particularly compelling because his message is just, I didn't like these people. And so I killed them all. And I'm like, "Okay, all right, John Doe. I I mean, I I guess you've made your point, Uh, which is that you don't really like people. Um, And then we kind of almost get him answering some of my earlier criticisms, which is he turns the sin against the sinner. Uh, because obviously with like sloth, it was like, is that guy really being sloth? Or, you know, if you're chained to a bed and starve for a year, are you really slothful? Um, but I think he's basically saying that each of the murders, some of them were ironic rather than, you know, uh, the, the person doing the actual sin. So obviously Lust was killed in an ironic way. Um, and, you know, he again, this this is where Kevin's basically kind of he he's mostly very calm. And we have kind of David Mills getting angry um, and there's a whole point where he's like, you know, sit back, sit back, sit back. Like, So obviously David Mills known to kind of feast on his own emotions. Uh, but then when he finally gets to John Doe, which feels like a little bit of a victory and then John Doe has to raise his voice um, and then he kind of calms down a little bit and realizes what he's trying to do. It's nice to see the kind of the facade dropping just a little bit. And It's like, you know, John Doe's worked all this out and spent you know, at least a year planning it, probably more than a year planning it. And then he's arrived at this point and, um, you know, Somerset, again, he asks like the right questions, whereas Mills is just like, are you, are you a crazy person? He's, ta- he's taunting crazy? him because, because, yeah.
1: because uh, you know, Mills just assumes that because they have him under arrest that he, he you know, as the phrase turns later, that he has the upper hand. So he can he can taunt him, he can make fun of him, he can needle him he, he you know he thinks that's you know in his right to do
0: and then we also get uh you know an allusion to police brutality <laughs> where, where John Doe is like I bet Mills wouldn't mind you know like uh just him and me in a in a like in a darkened room um you know, with nobody watching and it's and i I like us how well Mills is like he kind of almost admits it he's like, yeah <laughs> like, let's go to the room and let's like sort this out um so i like i don't know it's it's kind of weird because at a certain point you're like well i don't think they should be allowed to have mills just beat the crap out of john doe but at the same time
1: he's just he's mills at this point is is just getting away with he, he knows what he can get away with and and is yeah. you know, really keeping himself under control due to, to to go any further i did want to point out one kind of weirdly funny moment in this is uh when they're driving when they to the arrive spot and they pass a they pass yeah. a a dead dog on
0: the side <laughs> yeah. of the
1: road and 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 uh i forget which one of them announces that it's a dead dog and john Doe's it's like, when they actually
0: didn't... arrive it's when yeah. they it's when they stop and they arrive at the point where he wants them right and and he's, Mil, he's like Mil, i didn't do Mil that says, <laughs> says what yeah he says what is that to somerset and he goes dead dog and then the camera just literally t- like almost in a comedy way turns to john doe and he's like i didn't do that and it's it's yeah it, unfortunately it shows how good kevin spacey is a deadpan um uh but yeah the, but i i i mean i kind of like as well how like you know it hints at the fact that the original ending was going to be the killing of a dog and so it's 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 kind of almost like they've put that line in there just to kind of for people who know just to be like oh okay right they're talking they're talking about the original ending which was going to be in killing a dog at the same time um, you know, when he talks about him going to see Tracy, I don't know how the dogs like didn't make any noise. Like those dogs were super noisy when anybody was in that flat.
1: Well, we don't um, know. We don't know that he didn't kill them. Or we just we well, we, 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 yeah. I mean, we don't see anything about like, you know, the 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 crime scene or anything.
0: Yeah. So I yeah, I guess it's like one of those things where if you remember that the Millses have dogs, you're like, "Oh, well, maybe that's a hint that he did kill their dogs, but he didn't kill this dog." Um, but yeah, it's a great line. Um, and so wonderfully delivered as well, unfortunately. Uh, and then we get the whole, the big buildup. Um, you know, the music up until this point, like I said, it's mostly been ominous. Um, and then we see the delivery truck coming in. Uh, we get a lot of commentary on the helicopter, as they say, the delivery trucks approaching. Um, Somerset, now, it's interesting because Somerset, obviously, he decides to go and meet uh, the, the delivery truck. Um, but if he'd have said to Mills, you know, go and meet the delivery truck, like if he'd have, if he'd have not trusted Mills with John Doe and if he'd have just been like, I'll watch over John Doe, you go and get to the delivery truck. I think the whole, you know, the whole film, like all of John Doe's plan would have fell apart if he, if he didn't know for the fact that Somerset is obviously, um, you know, more careful and considered and <laughs> would be the one to go and meet the delivery driver. Because if, if, if Mills goes, then that turns into Mills running from the delivery driver back to the spot to kill John Doe. And John Doe doesn't get to deliver his speech, you know, like he just. So it's it's I don't know. It's it's kind of lucky that Somerset's the one who's like, I'll, I'll go meet the delivery truck. Yeah, it's interesting that
1: that that the you know every everything coming together kind of hinges on him knowing that it'll be it'll be Somerset that'll go. That's, yeah, that's, that's that's a. I mean, that might be a, that you know, if you're going to be a, a stickler for 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 like. I, I can't. You can't even call it a plot hole. It's just you know. I mean, I guess you could, you could call it a, a a plot hole. Like, what would he have done if Mills had gone to get it? I mean, I guess you could still kind of have it end the same way, but I think a lot of the the dramatic impact would be lost because again, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have John Doe just basically explaining to him what happened while you know while Mills is kind of both half listening to him and half trying to figure out. Why Somerset is you know, running towards him, you know, shouting and waving his arms and all.
0: Yeah, and I, I like as I mean, I guess it sort of makes sense that the senior detective would go and you know take the risk. Basically, you know, we don't know what's in that van. The van could explode. We've got, I mean, up until now, John Doe hasn't used explosives or anything, but anything could happen in that van. Anyone could be in that van. Someone could be heavily armed in that van. So I think it makes sense that Somerset is the one who goes to meet the van. Um, and I don't, I don't know that John Doe you know is that is kind of has, has factored that in but i think maybe in the car having the discussion um he's kind of figured out that that probably is what's going to happen uh, at the same time you know he you know he he found somebody who would cut off their own nose despite their face so like literally <laughs> yeah so 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 he he's maybe he's just very good at observing people um, I did say on the previous episode, maybe there's like 20 people wandering around disfigured who actually lived with themselves. <laughs> and John Doe was like, oh, I just can't find anybody who's super vain and willing to kill themselves instead of, um, you know, living with Um So I, I don't know, maybe he's just very good at reading people. And at, at this point in the film, I think it just I, I guess we know the characters of Somerset Mill so well, it makes it makes sense that Somerset would be the one to go. Uh, But like we say, it also means that's what the plot is hinging on. (laughs) It's hinging on Somerset being the more sensible kind of uh, detective uh, and the one who's going to meet the van. Um, And then we get, you know, a nice bit of business with the van driver and him being like, look, someone paid me 500 bucks to deliver this at 7 o'clock and it's a couple of minutes late. And I think it's funny because the van driver seems to be playing it as like, I'm a couple of minutes late, I'm sorry. Uh, Whereas obviously Somerset is playing it as, I'm going to shoot you in the head if you don't tell me what's going on. (laughs) And so there's a nice little bit of tension where, like, you know, the the van driver could be in danger if Somerset was a bit more kind of trigger happy. Uh, but obviously, we also know that Somerset has drawn his gun only three times in 34 years and has never fired it. So he's not going to be the kind of person to, um, you know, shoot someone in the head or whatever. But I do kind of like the tension of who is this guy? What is he delivering? Um, and then obviously that turns into, you know, the well-known ending, um, you know, with the, the whole what's in the box thing. Uh, and of course, you know, John Doe has the upper hand. And then you know, I think I—I um, I mean, I don't know if maybe these days it's even more cathartic, but just the fact that John Doe is kind of going on about how he tried to play house and he was envious, and so he is envy, and you must become wrath, and like the kind of constant kind of monotone, and and him just kind of talking, and I—I I like the fact that Mills is only half paying attention. Like Mills is like what's being delivered but he's also like just stop talking like he's, Yeah, he's I, just, I just, like, at the point he's just like he's
1: just he like, just stop the fuck up man. Like 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 <laughs> yeah. he just sort of casually like I'm not even listening to you saying until 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 it's sort of like almost like a a trigger word he says Tracy and 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 all of a sudden he's like what? You know,
0: I mean like that that snaps him out of it. Yeah. And then obviously he talks about how, you know, it's easy to get information if you you know pay other police officers and that kind of stuff, which is something that was obviously, you know, Morgan Freeman said earlier in the film, you know, like that's the members of the press arrive at places quickly because police officers pay them because they pay, you know, they they pay police officers and they pay well. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, Morgan Freeman has, well, Somerset should I say, has kind of justified how um, John Doe would be able to get this information Uh, In the in the original script, uh, John Doe was following the Millses around for a while, you know, like after the first murder. And so he knew where Tracy was. And, um, you know, Tracy had been actually moved to a safe house, but he got into the safe house. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that they basically just got rid of because it just complicated things too much. Um, And just being able to say here, oh, yeah, you know, I paid for the information is just a lot quicker way to to kind of get to that point. Um, and so I, I kind of like how, um, you know, it kind of play, it basically pays off some of the things that have been set up earlier in, in the film. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, John Doe gets killed <laughs> and, and that's it. Uh, and now here's the thing I like when it comes to these final two bodies, I think maybe like obviously John Doe is saying that he is envy, uh, but he's also obviously, you know, he was leading them out there to find a body, which I guess, you know, was about 25% correct um so it's kind of it's kind of interesting that you know maybe like he's going on about how people will remember him after this and all that and obviously mills is saying nobody's going to remember you you're a movie of the week which i think is a wonderful line and and then of course you know john doe dies and so he is envy but then it's like well brad pitt doesn't die so like there are seven bodies but there aren't seven victims that fit the pattern and you know so it's like well it does gwyneth paltrow count as envy and he's the victim of wrath and so is that how he's counting them um i've always yeah i would think so i mean he's
1: kind of the even if he's ultimately you know the body representing wrath i mean he's still orchestrated the whole thing
0: yeah i've always felt that's a little bit kind of hazy though because it's like you know she like he was envying her so she i mean she so she's the victim of his envy and then he's the victim of wrath, but then with the earlier sins, gluttony is the victim of being fed to death, so he is gluttony. So I I feel like John Doe has fudged it. Well, I
1: think it's it's all very it's it's mostly symbolic than anything yes. else.
0: Yeah, he he did say turning the sins against the sinners, but it's still it feel it feels a little bit like. If I was Somerset, just be, just before, you know, uh, Mills goes to shoot him, I'd say, hold on a second. This doesn't work out, John. <laughs> uh, could I don't you think... slow down and explain this to yeah. me one can you, more time? Can you, yeah, can you just, can I just, I'm sorry. I, like, I understand pride. That works. I understand gluttony. That works. Uh, greed sort of works, I guess. But you've mangled the whole Shakespeare thing because obviously in the play, uh, not not a drop of blood could be spilt. So you have messed that one up. But I'll give you greed. Okay, he was a greedy person. Uh, I don't know that cutting off his own stomach was really like that much of a but okay i'll take that one metaphorically but sloth that doesn't really fit and you know lust i mean okay i guess but these last two they really don't work out john i think you've miscalculated here um you know let's ignore what's in the box and let's just concentrate on the fact that i don't think you've quite you know executed this plan properly um but uh yeah so i don't know I, I obviously the fact that you know he gets shot six times, I think is always is kind of funny because it's like in this entire film, um, you know, aside from the the kind of gunshots that are fired by John Doe early on, uh, this is the only other time that someone fires a weapon in the entire film. Despite the fact we have a whole SWAT team like of eighty men going to get Sloth, <laughs> like nobody else fires guns apart from Mills and John Doe. Um, so it, that's always a, kind of like a nice thing. It's like the only two people who fire guns. One ends up dead and the other one ends up going to a mental institution um you know in the, in and and the, as we're saying as well though obviously most of the murders that take place um uh, they there's no guns used you know like it's it's mostly stabbings and stuff like that and starvation and you know it's it's, kind of, it's like that's why I think this doesn't really fit you know the billing of a serial killer because the methods are so kind of disparate um but it's it's kind of only at the end here that Mills is like well I do kind of like as well the the kind of hesitation after the first bullet is shot and obviously John Doe falls and then Mills is just like, I'm just going to keep shooting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the look on Brad Pitt's face of kind of resignation and kind of like. He's just like,
1: he's just broken like immediately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, I just kind of love that. Like he's gone from being this kind of manic kind of character at the beginning and and now here he is just completely broken and he's just like oh well i'm just going to shoot him another five times because it's like it's
1: like i'm already i'm yeah. already screwed my life my life is my life is is you know, i have no my life is gone
0: yeah he's like i'm i'm done so let's just keep let's just unload this clip and then let's call it a day um and then he kind of just slowly walks away uh interestingly on the uh, the two disc dvd that i have one of the behind the scenes features is how they did the color grading on this scene Um, All the way from uh, the driver driving up uh, to the um, you know to the to the the shooting of uh, John Doe, and it's a really interesting kind of like featurette where they they show how the different shots that they did were filmed at slightly different times of the day, so they didn't really match. Some were too bright, some were too dark, Um, and you know the kind of the handheld stuff was a little kind of it was completely almost completely different color to the rest of the, the the film. And so what they did was they went in and they basically um, David Fincher oversaw them color grading it when it went onto DVD. And so they basically digitally graded the entire of the film, but they only show you this scene. But it's really interesting about how like a lot of it was more yellowy and kind of greenish. And they kind of turned it all into this kind of, you know, dusty brown. And uh, it's kind of amazing. Like as a featurette, it's really interesting to see kind of something that is now kind of commonplace, like digital intermediates weren't really that commonplace when this film came out on DVD. But it's interesting to see the process of David Fincher basically using something digital, kind of like using a, a digital effect and actually making it improve the scene and kind of improve the cinematography and just make everything look more uniform. Um, and it's kind of amazing because it's like, oh yeah, you know, David Fincher is a really good filmmaker. So, <laughs> so of course, this yeah. is the attention to detail that he would put into it. Uh, and it's something obviously that then carried on through his like his next few films In particular, by the time he got to Zodiac, he was shooting everything digitally and he was basically color grading everything. Um, An effect that basically, if it's overused, it can, particularly like the digital saturation, I think there was a period in the early 2000s where people kind of really went heavy on it and it kind of ended up making a lot of films look really kind of cartoony. Um, I would say the only film that has ever really used digital grading as an effect and did it properly uh, is the classic Bradley Cooper film, uh, Limitless, where every time he took his drug and he became super intelligent, the entire kind of world was kind of color saturated, <laughs>
1: um,
0: and that and that was like a really good use of that particular effect. Um, but there have been a number of other films. I know there are people who kind of criticize all the Marvel films for looking the same because they all use the same <laughs> digital grading. Um, but you know, I, you know, I'm not really that concerned about that. Like you know, I don't mind. I don't mind the digital grading in in Marvel films as much as some other people do. Um, but it is like an effect that kind of ended up in like be, being everywhere. Like there was a point as well where certain films were, well, let's say Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, sepia to death basically. Like he <laughs> just did the color grading and everything was sepia. Uh, I've literally only seen about three minutes of that film because I could not take it. After three minutes, I was like, I can't take this. I can't take this digital grading. It's just it's completely doing my head in. I can't really cope with it. Uh, Guy Ritchie, fortunately, has kind of backed off a little bit from that. Um, but you know, people complain about J.J. Uh, Abrams and Flares but. Digital grading was a bigger, a kind of bigger, uh, kind of thing in the in the late nineties, early two thousands. Oh yeah, Um, totally. But but I would advise anybody to take a watch of that of that kind of that behind the scenes thing where they show you the scene. They show you the raw footage, and then they show you like what it looked like when it was in the cinema, and then they show you like doing the kind of cleanup for it to be onto a DVD. I'm assuming they probably went back one more time for Blu-ray and did it again, uh, just to kind of make the colours a bit more consistent. But it's kind of interesting because um along with the music which obviously i i love as well that there's a musical cue as somerset opens the box and realizes what it is and suddenly there's this loud musical cue and then the music really becomes very imposing and it's it's one of the few times in this film where the music really kind of dictates the mood uh, most of the time it's just kind of you know background noise and then here it's really like you know jun Doe has the upper hand and it's like you can feel it in the music and like i say the kind of color grading of the scene as well really works um, because unlike obviously the rest of the film, which has been rainy and dark, this is finally some kind of like sunlight and stuff. Uh, an earlier guest did point out that, you know, the film gets brighter and brighter as people know more and more stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and then obviously at the very end, obviously Brad Pitt knows everything. And that's when the film is, you know, at its brightest. But yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I think Mills is justified in his, his kind of six shots, but it, I, it's a lovely little touch that Brad Pitt has that, you know, once he sees that John Doe is dead, he then is like unloading his, his gun and not in like a joyful way or, you know, like a Rambo yeah, just type way sort of, way just, thing. just sort
1: of in a, you know, resigned. Yep, yeah, well, might as well be at this clip.
0: Yeah, and, and I kind of like that. That's one of the things like, you know, Brad Pitt obviously got criticism early in his career because he was not that good of an actor. Uh, but I think here he has that salty of someone who is broken. Like, uh, you know, in contrast to two minutes earlier, the whole What in the Box thing, he, this kind of broken man is kind of amazing to see that Brad Pitt is basically, you know, the kind of change from even the kind of questioning that's going on when they're in the car, like he's a bit more hyperactive and all this kind of stuff. And then he gets to this point and he's just completely done. Um, and then obviously when he's just sitting quietly in the car, being driven away. Um, and then of course we get our wonderful uh, quote uh, to finish the movie. Um, and I don't know. It's uh, to me, uh, I think Seven is, is like, it's amazing that this is like only David Fincher's like second feature film <laughs> because yeah. um, I would say there's a few directors who kind of managed to do this who like on their second film were like, oh yeah, this is my style. I think the other one who managed to do it really well was Chris Nolan, who like with Memento was like, yeah, I'm, this is Chris Nolan. Like you can't, you can't get away from the level of control that Chris Nolan has. I would even argue maybe, I guess you could say Jaws and Steven Spielberg um you know like they all kind of avoided the the sophomore slump and basically immediately established their their credentials as like oh this is what this is what a director does like they you know they have complete control over the product and i think david fincher was seven it's like it's kind of amazing to see and then you know every film since has been as kind of on it's basically at the same level david fincher went from like zero to 60 and then just has stayed there consistently for 20 years um and at this point doesn't kind of show any signs of stopping
1: yeah this is uh i would say this is probably top three of his movies for me i mean zodiac's always going to be for me the the uh you know the the bar his movies must set must must uh aspire to um and then i would say seven is probably it's the one it's one of his
0: movies other than zodiac i probably find myself thinking about the most I mean, for me, I'm going to have to say it'd probably be uh, Panic Room, then Benjamin Button, then The Game. I mean, those are the top three, I think, easily for everyone who is. I'm obviously joking. Those aren't the top three.
1: Um... (laughs) I was was thinking, like, do I want to challenge him on that? (laughs) It's like well, he's a ho- he's a host. So I am not going to argue with him.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I would say that Panic Room is probably my least favorite David Fincher film, other than Alien Three, which isn't a David Fincher, film. but I'd say Panic Room is probably my least favorite. I mean, I, I, the thing is as well, I don't hate the game. I mean, I've even recently watched the game again, <laughs> and I will I will happily watch the game anytime um, because I, I you know that was the first film that I saw at the cinema that uh, you know opened in our city like October 1997. It was like literally the first film I saw there. So, um, but yeah, I. I I, I don't know. I I, I I enjoy Zodiac. I don't think I enjoy Zodiac as much as people. I think for me, it's probably about number four or five, depending on my mood. Um, I think Social Network and Seven and Fight Club are probably, you know, one, two and three or three, two and one, whichever. whichever I don't know, just depends on the day. Um, you know, I'll happily watch any of those films in, in any order. Um, and then I would probably say after that, probably, uh, I don't know, maybe Gone Girl, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and then probably probably the game and then panic room um, but uh, yeah i i mean I, the thing is i i personally don't think he's made a bad film i think panic room's just a little bit disappointing when you when you consider that he came off the run of seven the game fight club and then his yeah. next film is panic room it's like yeah
1: panic panic room's a little a little generic it, it comes off a little bit it it, it feels like a tv movie um, certainly certainly the plot feels like it and there are some certain uh, let's call them Fincherian aspects like the uh the pretty fairly iconic scene of I think it's a gas line kind of moving through the house that that that's done pretty well but other than that the it just feels like a very generic home invasion type movie
0: yeah and the thing is as well like I'm not somebody who like hates David Coep uh but you know who I, I guess if people know um screenwriters he most recently has kind of Um, well he's done he's done stuff for well he he kind of he adapted Jurassic Park and he did you know Jurassic Park 2 and then he did uh, Kingdom of Crystal Skull for Steven Spielberg Uh, and obviously he wrote the first Mission Impossible Um, and then recently he's ended up being well again he went he worked with Spielberg on War of the Worlds and then he did um, Angels and Demons for Ron Howard and he did you know the first Spider-Man film for Sam Raimi Um, and then also Carlito's Way, Snake Eyes for De Palma so like he's you know he's he's got certain directors that he's worked with more than once. You know, uh, and I'd also say Stir of Echoes, which I think is his directorial. I think it was probably his second film or third film he directed. Um, I'd say that's a strong film. Stir of Echoes is you know it's yeah, a good yeah performance yeah. from Kevin Bacon yeah you know so I, but I I think everything else that he's written, including um, Mordecai. Um... <laughs> oh good lord! You might be
1: the only you might be the only person who's brought that movie up in in. You know, probably
0: the last year and a half yeah and he obviously he did you know the the mummy film that had Tom Cruise in because you know he's worked with Tom Cruise a few times and you know he's I, I, David Coe kind of one of those direct kind of like a go-to direct kind of writer um, you know he's he's, he, he's kind of like uh, Akiva Goldsman and I'd say at this point as well Chris McQuarrie and uh, I don't know John August like there's a few directors out there who kind of they write stuff for certain directors uh, I guess Robert Town would probably be the best example of somebody from like the seventies and eighties who kind of did that kind of stuff. And uh, also I'd say recently Stephen Zalian also kind of does that kind of thing where they write kind of like big budget films, but they also do kind of the odd Oscar thing every now and again. Um, But yeah, David Coepp's directorial career is really weird as well because he did stir of echoes, but he also did secret window with Johnny Depp and then he did ghost town and then he did premium rush. So like premium rush is a great film. Um, But I don't know. He's got such a weird, he's got such a weird career.
1: I was gonna say that's a little very very the very definition of, uh, of hit or miss.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, like I and I'd say Panic Room is kind of one of those as well. It's like it feels very kind of like generic thrillery type thing. It's just something that's kind of what he does, um, and I don't think that David Fincher could kind of really do much with it other than um, that. Well, that the, I mean the shot you're talking about uh, is kind of amazing because it's basically a hundred percent CG um it is like a there's like a shot that goes from the bedroom all the way down through some um you know stairs and then down into the kitchen and then through a bunch of appliances in the kitchen and then back up and and that shot is basically it starts being real and it finishes being real but everything in the middle is 100% cg um <laughs> and it's and it's kind of amazing to watch but you know stuff like that is like okay but it's it kind of feels just like a bit of a disappointment after the run that David Fincher was on up until that point um, and then I would say that since Zodiac, um, you know, I know people don't like Curious Case of Benjamin Button, but I enjoy it. But I'd say since Zodiac, everything has been probably a lot better, uh, certainly a lot better than Panic Room. let's probably like that. Um, you know, I know people were kind of divided on Girl with Dragon Tattoo, but, I, I, you know, I think that's that's still kind of an amazing film, even compared to the originals. Um, you know, the original Girl with Dragon Tattoo was, I don't know, I'd say like a 7 out of 10 for me, probably. Um, you know, whereas I'd say David Fincher's probably a 8 out of 10 um and, and gone girl at this point is five years since that came out so uh, you know lord knows when we're going to get another david fincher film um but i don't know it's just kind of amazing to think of seven being well first of all the fact that it came out in 1995 uh which is now 20 something years ago but just kind of that run that he's been on since then like you know just it's it's kind of amazing just when you look at his career like how assured he is in everything that he does um including house of cards and Mindhunter, like even there, it's, you know, his style is unmistakable. And this is kind of the film that set that up. You know, ignore Alien 3. It's not a film that he had any control over. He got sacked from it three times. So yeah. <laughs> what what hope did he have? Seven is where his career starts. And it's such a kind of assured start to it. Um, and this ending is it, like for a film that about halfway through, you're kind of like unsure as to where it's going. It really sticks the landing. Like it's there's nothing more satisfying <laughs> than John Doe being shot six times and Mills just being completely broken, and then you just hear somebody calls somebody. And, <laughs> you know, I feel like everybody can relate to that quote more than the, you know, the world is a fine place. Somebody calls somebody is probably something that you could easily yell at any point in your life, and it would really work. That's um, true. That That's a good yeah. point. So <laughs> so I feel like we said about as much as we possibly can about Seven. I certainly know that I've basically spent about eight hours talking about this film. Um. So uh, let's go to Plugs.
1: Uh, Me, I am the co-host of the Kill by Kill podcast, in which we talk about horror movies, uh, focusing on the characters and the weird little details. Uh, We just wrapped up um, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, and we are about to get into Part 5, The Dream Child. Uh, So you can look for us just under Kill by Kill. Uh, I am also a writer for The Spool. Um, I write about um, movies and television. And I have my own website under uh, GinaRadcliffe.com.
0: And I would say, I don't think it's... It doesn't have the part five subtitles, is it? It's just A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child? Am I remembering that correctly? I
1: think it is part five, the Nightmare oh, on Elm Street it? Five, The Dream Child, I think, yeah.
0: Okay, for some reason I thought that was one of the... I know certainly like uh, the Friday the 13th begin. Like they kept the numbers, but there are a lot of horror franchises that just at a certain point they're like, "Don't want to know how many films are in."
1: Well, they they change them like later. It's uh, it's Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare. Yeah. Like there's no number in that one. So yeah, they, they kind of they kind of go back and forth, and then there's new nightmare. So yeah, they I think after five is when they give up on numbering them.
0: Yeah, I think it's the same with uh, Halloween. Like there's one of the parts where it's like it's just. The curse of Michael Myers. It's like, it's like don't don't tell anyone what the number is. You yeah. don't want to know how far into this franchise, how many sequels are exactly. In. Um, you know, I've always been a fan of of franchises sticking to numbering religiously. Um, you know, in particular, I know people don't like the Saw franchise, uh, but I like the fact that they kept Roman numerals for every single entry all the way up until Part Six. <laughs> and they were and they.
1: Look, well, consistency is important. Yeah.
0: Well, this is it. Uh, that's how that's how Bart works out. Rumor numerals is, you know, uh, you know, Rocky Seven, Adrian's Revenge. Um, <laughs> and you can also hear me on other podcasts. Uh, I've mentioned six of them up until this point. Uh, and so I mentioned my seventh podcast, which was Prince Trap by Track, which I spent two years talking about every single episode, every single song that Prince had ever released while he was live. And then one after he died. And that's where I'm finished, because I'm not going to keep talking about Prince songs for the rest of my life, because they're just going to keep releasing albums. Uh, You can find that on Twitter at Prince Podcast or uh, on Facebook at Prince Strapway Track. Um, And I will actually be returning to that podcast, but not to talk about Prince, but instead to talk about Stevie Wonder, because Stevie Wonder also released a lot of songs in a very short period of time uh, during the 70s. And they were all really, really good. And so I felt like I should treat myself to covering all of those. Uh, I am definitely not going to talk about anything after the year 1976, though, because things go downhill pretty quickly. Uh, so <laughs> I'm definitely not going to be talking about the Woman in Red soundtrack. Let's it like that. Uh, oh, yeah. good heaven So, uh, Thanks for being my guest here, Gina, on this final episode of Seven in Seven. Thank you. And otherwise, goodbye. Bye.